Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. Sometimes we fail. I'm your host. Our prayer tonight will be given by nobody, because we have a bunch of people who refuse to do it. We've gone through many of the people who are here. The, the rest of the studio audience have all prayed, so we're going to do it silently. I'm done if you are. All right. A couple of things. In an effort to open the doors wide, we are continually trying to reach out to people who have a great heart, devotion to God, but are generally either they're not known, they're, they're ignored, they're set aside, or uh, they don't have a vehicle to present their message. Uh, maybe uh, even their views sometimes might be uh, maligned. Uh, so we've uh, mentioned breaking bread with Warren Puckett, and... Uh, and uh, we also have uh, Breaking Bread is available. You can find them on YouTube by typing in Breaking Bread with Warren Puckett. That's two T's, P-U-C-K-E-T-T. You can also click on the bell icon and you will receive new notifications when something is uploaded to that site, like a new show. So you get those notifications and you're on your device and you'll have that. So we're doing that. Uh, his tapings can uh, be seen also on HOTM.TV until we get a site built for him, and then it will all start running there. Also, a few weeks ago, Seth started producing uh, a, a pastor named Pastor T. Take a look. For quite some time as to how to deliver this message, I prayed and I asked the Lord, and he opened up a door. So here I am before you tonight. Because not only do I love you, but God loves you. And so therefore, he's calling us all leadership. You know, leadership, if we don't get it right, we're in trouble with God because we are responsible for the people of God. We're responsible. Hallelujah. We're responsible for the souls, you know. Um, and the reason I'm talking to leadership is because I'm a leader and I've had to repent. Uh, several times myself, you know, it, the, the, the church is supposed to grow. And I'm talking about from glory to glory. But if we're not on this foundation, this is why this broadcast is called Going Back to the Foundation. We have to build upon the prophets. We have to build upon the apostles. We have to build upon Yeshua, Hamashiach. We have to follow this guideline. And when I say going back to the foundation, we have to go back to principles. We have to go back to the simple uh, beginnings of this thing. Speaking of going to, let me iterate a number of informational sources. If you can't get enough of Heart of the Matter, Please subscribe to your, our YouTube channel. We stream live every Tuesday night now, 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And there is a live chat at the bottom. I guess people, while they're watching, they say negative and positive things. And you can interact with others. Uh, it is monitored, so if you get out of hand, our moderator, known as LW, will kick you off quickly. 
but you can pose off-air questions throughout the show through that on uh, that interaction. Uh, when you subscribe, click on the notification bell icon. That's how you do it. And in this way, you'll be notified of any action that changes or happens on our channel. Uh, we upload the Tuesday night shows, and we also release short clips, what we call shreds of previous episodes, every evening at 5.30. So every evening at 5.30, people, I think, uh, Wendy says, we have over 3,000 subscribers. Now, we just started that how long ago, Wendy? Three months ago, three months ago we started it. We have 3,000 subscribers in those three months, and so every night at 5.30, they're getting a notification of a shred that have been uh, culled out of and kind of keep you going with what ministry. There's also older episodes of Heart of the Matter being edited with current phone numbers and websites for those who want to get a hold of us, haven't been able to. Also, Campus YouTube, our Sunday services stream live. You go to campuschurch.tv at 10 a.m. You can click on and you can watch our service live. It's not really too big of a service. We pray, we sing, we read the word together, discuss, ask questions, comments, and get out of there. You can catch these archived, all the services archived at campuschurch.tv. And if you're interested in listening to our podcasts, you can go to your app store, download Podkicker, go to Podkicker, and we've uploaded over 100 of our older episodes as well as some of our current ones of Heart of the Matter. As download, we also download campus uh, sermons on Podkicker, our Sunday episodes, Meat and Milk, all of this available for you. We're building on this. Wendy is uh, building on this with Seth and, and other people, Mike Lake in, uh, in British Isles, other people who have contributed a lot of time to put this together. It's growing. It's getting legs. And so if you want to participate in those, really grateful. Before we go to our topic tonight, uh, got a couple emails I just want to cover really quickly. One is from Sarah, who is a writer of books, and she is working on a book uh, about Vlad the Impaler. Okay, Sarah's a believer, and she says, Sean, I watched your episode with Bob, and then I watched the follow-up episode. When I saw the clips of Bob speaking to various audiences before your interview with him, I have to admit I thought he was a nut. I was sure he must be a false prophet of some kind and was curious to see how your conversation would go with him. But then I saw what you must have seen in him. He was very genu genuine in what he was saying. He, I don't think he was lying. He truly believes in a surprisingly humble demeanor that what he says he is. I found myself wondering if maybe God is speaking to him. After everything I've learned, I suppose it is possible after all. But even if it isn't, one thing is for sure, he loves God. I realized I jumped to a knee-jerk judgment without actually hearing him speak for himself and like others was hoping you would slap some reality into him. In the follow-up episode, you mentioned how people loved your ripping up Mormons and then how they be even continued to love when you would rip the Christian churches too. I know I enjoyed both, but it never struck me to repent for such an attitude until you used the word bloodthirsty. It struck me because that is actually the theme of my book. I am writing the, about Vlad Dracula, as you know, but the message, eventual message, I hope to send is that we are all vampires if we have a thirst for blood. And whether we like to admit it or not, we all do on some level. 
Bloodthirst does not necessarily mean physical violence must be involved. To find entertainment in the destruction or harm of others physically or verbally is to be bloodthirsty. I never thought I was guilty of this crime until you brought it up in that follow-up episode about Bob. And then I had to beg God for forgiveness. Here I am trying to tell the world that they are bloodthirsty vampires, but I find the same entertainment and humiliation of others that they do. Thanks for bringing Bob on the show. It convicted me of bloodthirst. I hope it does the same for others. And it convicted me too. When I met Bob Pryor, I was, willing, I was in my mind thinking, okay, charlatan, let's take him out. Come on, we're going to get down. And my heart changed. I, I, I remember uh, calling, I, I think I talked to Mary, or it could have been one of my daughters, and just saying, I don't see what I thought I was going to see in this guy. And it's really remarkable. So that's something to consider. Also, we mentioned an email from Mark. Mark wrote a long email that was against Bob. He wrote back, Mark's a, a good guy, he's a believer. The, the reason I use Mark's email is because he hit eloquently on all the things other people were saying and writing. So instead of taking this and that and that, I just used his singular one that wasn't to pick on him. He's a, a humble guy and, uh, and someone wrote, hey, why is it, why is McCraney say, don't pick on Bob, but he's picking on the guy who criticizes Bob. I was not picking on, on, on Mark's right to criticize. I was just saying that we're not going to get anywhere by doing that. And the reason is, I don't think we change people's minds. I really don't. I think that we can present things and love and we can share views, but I really don't think we're going to change people's minds through vinegar and vitriol. So uh, just wanted to cover that. Before our diversion to Bob Griffin, we were covering the contents of this workbook, wherever I've put it, um, and it's called The End of Material Religion. We have a whole bunch of these that have been uh, photocopied, and we can send these to you if you're interested, but we can also send them to you as a PDF, and all we ask is that you forward those out, but we've been covering the contents, and this is the last part of that 40-page booklet. And uh, so we started with a board presentation on our last show. I'm going to go to the board now and, and try to kind of wrap up where we've been. So we started a few weeks ago, and we talked about, we kind of laid out why material religion, there should be an end to it. And what we said was, in the Old Testament, we had God working through the nation of Israel, and he was doing that materially. Okay? And so there was a whole history of that, and that's the whole Old Testament. And then we talked about this culminated, this material history culminated in the material manifestation of Jesus, right? And we said that when God became flesh, this was a material manifestation of all the prophecies. And we said that began something different, that he fulfilled everything that was written here about him, the law, the prophets, everything. Not one jot or tittle would fade away. He fulfilled that completely, right? And that launched us out from going from the material. And when he departed and he ascended, he sent, had the Father send the Holy Spirit. And so we said, listen, 
there was a transition away from this former economy through Christ fulfilling it, and now we're looking to things being done by the Holy Spirit. And we said, and we made a really good case, that God says in Hebrews, listen, I'm going to shake everything up one more time. I'm going to shake it so hard in heaven and on earth that anything that can be shaken will be leveled. And anything that remains uh, will remain forever. That's spiritual. So what happens is we then transition from this period. We have, we have uh, 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, uh, we have, not 70 years, 40 years, we have the destruction of Jerusalem. And we know that when this happened, the once great city of Jerusalem and all that it was about, etc., etc., was leveled to the ground and blood flowed and all the things that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 were fulfilled. And this was the leveling of this former economy that was met halfway with Christ. He said, this is what's going to happen to everybody who I've come for who doesn't receive me. And once this shaking had occurred, we said, it's over. Everything that could be shaken was shaken. And the only thing that remained is a new Jerusalem. And it lives in the heavens. It, it, it dwells in the heavens where Christ is, where he sits on the right hand of the Father. We talked all about that. Okay, you need to erase that. Our eraser was a little bit sleepy right now. So there's a delay. He could have been nipping at the communal wine in the back as far as we know. All right. Here's the problem. We talked about what this should mean. That God has now written his laws upon our heart. And all things that can be shaken should be gone now. And if there's things in your Christian walk that can be shaken, brick and mortar, material application to religion, pastors, elders, boards, standards, nah, 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 all that stuff, that stuff can be changed and shaken. It's not even part of the faith. The body of Christ is now made of individual believers, men of authority, priesthoods, empire building, the church is in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's my claim. Unfortunately... Men have come along and they've said, nope, we are, going to, we are going to build up material religion again. And we are going to say this is how God does things still, through the former material ways. And so this, this whole thing, and when did it start? It started after Jerusalem was destroyed. Then we had a period of time, all the apostles are gone. And what happened? We started, it began when we started recognizing men as early church fathers. We called these men early church fathers. Okay? This was the beginning. We stopped saying he's the father. We said we have early church fathers. Institutional brick and mortar fathers. Forgetting that Matthew 23, 9, Jesus said, Call no man father upon the earth. No man, he says. We ignore that. We don't care. 
We have early church fathers in the Christian faith. And this is not just Catholics. This is Protestants. It started with this thinking, okay? And then we tried to gather the apostolic letters. Now we're out here. We're about 285 AD. We start gathering the apostolic letters, okay? Now, they couldn't be gathered uh, completely and mass-produced. There's no way. But we were trying, the men, the early church fathers and others, started reading what we, uh, the apostolic letters said, and they started saying, this is going to become our new codus. This is going to become what we govern the church by. And we started looking for this book to become the governing instructions for brick-and-mortar institu institutions, the first one being the Catholic Church. So we have brick and mortar now really coming together. Now we're at about uh, 325 AD. We have Constantine, and we have all this stuff coming into play. We have brick and mortar run amok. We have institutions. We have codified what to call God now. It's not God. You know, we, we try to think that we can actually describe him with a term. When you can describe him with a term, I'm telling you, you're missing something and you're wrong in some way. But we did it. We allowed it. We said, we need some certainty here. We just can't have it all willy-nilly. Spirit's too scary. He goes where he wants. We need the Spirit to be right where we call him down to be and to do what we exactly tell him to do. So I've yet to have anyone give me a reasonable explanation of where the apostolic letters say they're for us today. Where they're for anybody but what happened up to this point at 70 AD and that the letters were written to everybody then. Somehow we took them and said it's all for us now. Okay, I'm not, believe me, I love the apostolic letters. I read them, great spiritual lessons. I don't put, give more time to anything in my life than the apostolic letters, the New Testament. Nevertheless, they were never meant to be a manual of brick-and-mortar material instructions for this. Never! They're maps. It's a map for the individual believer. When you are by the Spirit, you open up and you read it, and God speaks to you and grows your spirit and faith and love. That's what it's for. But instead, men have said, no, we're going to codify, codify this church, and we're going to use this to set all the rules. So we allowed councils under Constantine to formalize beliefs and council creeds and doctrinal creeds for the masses. And for a thousand years, now we go out 1,000 years, actually more. We go out a thousand years. Do you know how long that is? And we say, this is what God wants you to do. And we govern the church with blood. I mean, it is governed by, by men and the institution using their interpretation of that book. And it, it, there, I mean, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I can't see the gates of hell doing anything but prevailing during those thousand years. Doesn't mean that God didn't have a remnant. Doesn't mean that the authority to do things in Christ's name was lost because believers have that authority. All that continued on. There were all, there's always a remnant. Doesn't mean that the Mormons needed to restore things back to the earth. That was just something they came up with because they didn't know what else to do. None of that plays in, but this was a complete misappropriation in my estimation of what, what, what we needed. So the church was in control of the institutions 
it was the Bible was not accessible to the masses um, due to poverty. If, 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 a, if a poor person had an opportunity to get a Bible, they could never afford it. Uh, and, and the education, they didn't speak Latin. Jerome put it into Latin. They didn't speak Greek. And the inability to even understand what it was saying. So the institution had that Bible for that many years. God allowed that. He allowed that to be. And finally, in the face of 1,200 years of institutional failure, remember, institutional failure, that's all they saw, some brave men, they came forward in the Reformation. Luther, Erasmus, John Calvin, and they said, no. The institutional approach to this thing has not worked. It has been a fail. Look at the history. We need to do something about that. But the contents of their manual, what we call the Bible, was not agreed upon. Now, this is the manual that's supposed to be the inerrant, infallible word of God. And even at 1500 AD, it was not agreed upon as to what it was. There was many differences even between Erasmus and Luther and Calvin. And Calvin brought in, you know how I feel on that, he brought in a whole new way to take that Bible. So now we have, ultimately, they created something called Sola Scriptura. They said, we will take this, and it, by this we will determine how everything is seen and believed. So for the first thousand years, we have a completely agreed upon, pretty much agreed upon, between the Catholic Church is overseen of what the Bible means. That didn't work. So then we come into Sola Scriptura, and the men say, okay, we're going to use the government. And Erasmus says to Luther, let me tell you something. What you mean by Sola Scriptura is we believe the Bible as far as Luther translates it. That's what Erasmus said to Luther. I don't like this Sola Scriptura deal that you're introducing because you're saying it's right as long as you interpret it the way you interpret it, Luther. That was an actual thing that they wrote to each other. Nevertheless, we come up sola scriptura, utter fail. At this point, the, the contents of the Bible have been used to divide and create schisms, forge denominationalism, forge hatred, uh, death, putting people to death who don't see the way other people read this very same apostolic letters that we have in front of us. And uh, instead of doing what that great, wonderful book is supposed to do, and that's let people get together, let them pray, let them worship, let them read the Bible, and let them believe how they believe it's speaking to them, and not get all frantic over disputable doctrines that do nothing but kill and destroy and divide. So we, since then, and now we say, okay, but since then we have created countless of translations of this Bible now, okay? So we say it's inerrant, we say it's trusted, it is, by the Spirit, but we say epistemus verba, we say every word is inspired, but we can't even agree on something as simple as baptism. And in the face of all this, materialism has begun to reign. Why? Because when a church says, we have the right way of interpreting this book, and they have the wrong way, and that church gets materially more successful, they have the right in this world to say, look, we're being blessed by God for the way we interpret the word. 
look how wealthy and successful and how many members we have. And the poor and the outcast, they certainly couldn't be seeing the word in the right way. So obviously we're blessed by God and materialism begins to reign. And so what do we have? We have material empires today. The Lutherans, the Catholics, the Baptists, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness. It's on and on. And the lowly people who Jesus came and hung out with and understood, his apostles included, they barely get seen or understood. And if they differ, they're out on their ear. And the institutional empires of material continue to reign. And then in the end, we have 2,000 years and the churches use material hell and eternal judgment and the imminent return of Christ upon everybody who's coming in. Look, he's coming. You better get, you better get ready. 2,000 years they've been doing that. Forgetting the contextual understanding of the word all the way back there. And some people have seen the quagmire we have created and they tried to step up and say, yeah, Joseph Smith was one. Uh, Alexander Campbell was another. Ellen G. White was another. Uh, William Chaz Russell was another, all stepped up and said, yeah, this stuff is not working. We need to do something different. And they were restorationists. We're going to change things and try to see things in a new way. Christian scientists too. So all of them wound up then looking down on those who did not embrace their doctrine, their practice, and their ways. And this is the very thing. Heaven is not about that. We all think we're going to go to heaven in our respective little factories. And we all think that along the way, we can look at everybody else and say, wrong, 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 right, right, right. I'm going to heaven. You're going to hell. And that is what we live in. That's the reality from all of the stuff that we've gotten from a material focus on religion. This leaves us with one question. If material religion is dead... What does this mean to Christianity today and to true believers in Christ Jesus? What does it mean to pastors and reverends and fathers and bishops? And what does it mean to the churches? We are so conditioned to see organized religion and denominational affiliation as synonymous with being a Christian that most people are going to have a really difficult time separating the two out at this point. Uh, it's going to take some real pressure from the world to deconstruct the churches physically. It's going to take the government probably to come in and remove tax-exempt status because of gay marriages and all of this stuff. And that will break it up, you know. And then the true believers will do what the church has always been about, believing and loving and serving, you know. But all those things could force us into a material deconstruction. But because humans are social animals and fellowship is good with like-minded believers, getting together is really good, it's doubtful that the masses will ever just say no more of that, right? And they shouldn't. That's okay. Because it's good to be together. In light of this reality, I would suggest some inward changes have to occur first. And that's what we're petitioning for is an inward change among believers. Right now, you want to go to a church that's Catholic or Baptist or Mormon, you want to sit there, you want to pay them tithes, you want to dress their way, you want to obey their rules. Do, you can do that for yourself, but try to have an inward change about how you see other people who claim Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. If it can begin there, if pastors can begin to embrace this idea, 
we will start to see a change in the overall material thing. Why care? Why do this? Well, first of all, I think we've proven it's a biblical premise. We've proven it by the Old Testament, Jesus, the Spirit coming in, the deconstruction, the shakeable. We've proven that this is the biblical premise. That's the first reason. I think we've proven it's a historical premise. I think we can see that this beautiful subjective faith has been hijacked way back here and by Constantine and by all this, it was hijacked and it was built into an institution probably by very well-meaning people, okay? I think that by taking action now, we will enable, this is why, individual believers to start to see what it means to truly be free in Christ. That's terrifying for people, but it's up to pastors to help their sheep have that direct relationship to God and not to go through them. And this is the duty of us is to teach, 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 but to let the people go directly to God and establish that relationship. I think it would be really great for pastors to realign their priorities. It will relieve them of pressures of being Jesus to everybody when we have a Jesus. We don't, we don't need to, to discipline. We don't need to ostracize. We don't need to condemn. And we don't need to buoy people up. We just teach the word. And I think change will uh, uh, protect this faith in the long run against stuff that's heading down the pike that we're not even seeing yet. That the evolutionists and all the scientific stuff and all the other proofs and all the higher criticism against the faith and, um, and, and all the uh, agenda, political agendas against the church and the 501c3 status, we're going to be assassinated if we don't take a preemptive strike. And that preemptive strike will be for us to say, okay, let's back up on how we've approached this and let's start just letting people believe and live as they're going to believe and live. Let's preach Jesus. Let's teach the Bible contextually, but let's not divide. And our children will see that it's a faith of love. It is a faith of service and selflessness. It's not a faith of cliques and being better than the other guy. And we will give them viable answers and responses, not myths to things like uh, evolution and such. And so the sciences in high school and in college aren't going to strip them away from their faith because we give them a reasonable approach, one that is much more open to God and his spirit rather than dogma, which is not holding up. It's not going to hold up. It's going to continually be attacked. So what needs to happen? I'm going to give you five suggestions. How much time? Don't know. 25. Okay. This is just a suggestion to pastors and individual believers. Begin to emphasize in your heart, and if you're a pastor to your congregates, the mental, even physically replace, if you can, objective religious demands and doctrine and replace them with Christian relationships. Start replacing all the dogma, all the things that make you want to punch Bob in the face with more smiles and nods and acceptance when people say, I love the Lord. He is my God and King. I've been saved by grace through faith, whatever we say. When that is said, whatever else, let's just start changing the mind. It 
looks like teaching and entertaining all viable options. So what, look at what we do. This is the temptation when you're a pastor. I know because I, I have the temptation. It's to preach what you think. It's, it's what we do. I think this. Okay? You can teach that. But you also say, but others think this. We step off the bandwagon of dogmatic approaches and we say, these are the many options and they are all pretty good and we don't really know. Let's be honest with each other. When pastors start doing that, it then puts it into the minds of the believers to say, well, let's see what I think. Instead of just letting them leech off you for their salvation and their information and lazily not pursue God and uh, Christ through their own uh, means. It means allowing all people to seek God as they are allowed. If someone believes in tongues or water baptism or not or this or that, all those things, it's up in the air. If it's up in the air among denominations and we say, well, that denomination's okay and that denomination's okay, if we allow it to be up in the air among denominations, we should allow it to be up in the air amidst our own congregants. When we do that, then we, what we do is we open the doors wide and we stop our own people from dividing with others. And it gives them the freedom to decide. These things might get the ball rolling. Then it might include, preferably from pastors, but also congregates, refuse to impose or receive any or all organizational demands. Don't put them on the people. If pastors would stop passing plates, demanding tithes, building fund requests, that monetary oppression that's on the people, uh, support the deconstruction of endless institutional programming to keep people busy in your church. They won't go to another one. Don't look or care if people are with you or another. Just let it go. Don't be providing them everything they need during the week. Let the families be freaking families. Let them go and do things that families do. Let them engage with people in the world and share the faith rather than, you know, it, 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 exclusively just only huddling together with each other because we, we belong to the true faith here, you know. Just push for lower institutional overhead. Push for lower top-heavy staffing. You know, you can do it. It doesn't take much. Most people want to volunteer. They don't need to be paid. What do you need to be paid for if someone just teaches, you know? Liquidate material abundance. Start, use the proceeds to feed the poor and help the needy or teach the gospel or help other people who are believers to learn Greek or something like this. Try to put an end to all the memberships. Put an end to the signed contracts of worthiness. Put an end to the disciplinary council or anything that smacks of denominational authority. Drop the statements of faith. Who gives a rat's rear end what your little institution upholds as a statement of faith. So you can go and arm yourself with it. Get rid of it. And then, this is my thing, I think an utter end to Christianity fighting or protesting against social evil. I absolutely think issues related to sexuality, abortion, pornography, alcohol, substance abuse, political agendas or stances, other evils. That's not, Christ didn't come and fight that. The apostles didn't come and fight that. They taught the good news. Let's teach the good news and let's live the Christian life ourselves. We won't have the abortions. We won't have the sexual things. We won't be involved in the pornography. We'll be a, a lamp into the world. We'll be salt to the earth. And we won't judge other people because we once came out of that. And we won't make that our thing. 
And we'll, be, we'll, we'll persuade Christians, especially ourselves, to be known for our love. Known for our non-judgmental love. And forget all the rest. And just follow Jesus and what he actually lived like and did when he walked the earth. Let's try to do that. And then finally, uniting in a concerted effort to be known as people who collectively don't embrace being of this world. And that's however it looks. If we have rich people who embrace it and poor people who don't or vice versa, we don't judge. We let them be. We have people who are of every ilk. We have pride, proud people in the church. We have people who are so arrogant and we love them. And we have homosexuals and we have people who, who are, are whatever way. Why can't the church be this? share him, leave the judgments to God, forgive all people all the time. It's my belief that if we start doing that, that we will move into what Christianity is always meant to be, from a biblical, historical, as a place of defense, as a preemptive strike against what's headed toward us. I don't think it'll happen. Uh, I wish it would. I think it happens among individuals, though. We see the emails, and people, the light comes on, and they say, you know, I think I'm getting this now. I'm not playing church anymore. Maybe it would require voting with your feet, saying, I'm never stepping foot in a brick and mortar. My church is going to be studying the word online. You know, maybe we don't have to do all this brick and mortar stuff anymore. I'll get together at the movies with my Christian friends on Fridays. There's my fellowship. We can be different and we can go against the sway that was established by all this junk. It's going to take some guts. But if we do it, I think the benefits far outweigh the detriments and the difficulties. Let's open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413. We'll come back and take your calls. on that. I just, I realized this. Someone, I named names. When you do that, you get into trouble because you always forget somebody. And uh, one name I know I've forgotten. And if I didn't mention you, two names I forgot uh, are the Lakes in, in uh, London who are doing so much work with Wendy and Jed. I just saw Jed the, uh, here in the audience. And I didn't mention Jed on Bishop Searle's show, but he does so much through the coffee ministry. He's been a main part of the ministry forever. Love Jed as my brother. So those two people I didn't mention, I'm sorry. When that ha I wrote a book once and I mentioned everybody except Marnita. And uh, I paid for that one, believe me. So uh, anyway, uh, naming names is such a bad thing to go down. But when you do it, uh, sometimes you've got to make reparations. Okay, let's go to Diana in San Diego, line one. Diana, you're on Heart of the Matter. So 
Diane. Diana. Hi. What's up? I I called last week. Use a different name though. Oh. Um, Lisa. I was Lisa last week. I have to keep my name changed because I'm still like Mormon. Yeah. So <laughs> you know. We'll call you Diana I'm Lisa. Where are you getting these first names? Why don't you be a little bit more creative? Okay. I'm kidding you. I'm kidding you. <laughs> like Eliza. It's just, it's just the first time I called, I was like, wait, if I say Diana from West Palm Beach, Florida, someone in my ward is going to hear this. Ah. You know? Got it. That's why. All right, Diana from San Diego, what's up? Um, so I'm on the phone with my sister, the one who's trying to pull me out of Mormonism. Hi, Sean. Hi. How are you? She's the quiet one in the family. Me? Not really, but okay. <laughs> um, so we, we have been talking. Yeah. And she's always asked me, you know, how, because she's, I don't know, through our talk. This, this is the question, Sean. My question was, I, was, I, start, I, I started doing research around uh, December 1st. Yeah. And it was based on my institute teacher, how he reacted to an LDS scholar book. Oh. And his reaction made me question, why is, he, why is he acting so aggressive? And that's what started me on my research. And then I hit your, your videos at first. And, of course, the first time I saw it, I was angry. I was like, this guy yells too much. He argues. What's his problem? <laughs> but I couldn't stop watching. And so you were, doing, you were saying accent. certain things that you could not argue. But that's just a little past. The, what's, this is two months now. And so my question to you was, I, I saw a video today. And I'm totally out, by the way. But I haven't done uh, my, uh, my letter, letter yet. Or I haven't taken my, my, my records out for, uh, for a personal reason. But I'm going to do that in the future. But that's the point. Um, my question to you was, there's this scientist in the church that uh, is doing DNA evidence. And he says that he, had, he has found uh, evidence of the Nephite Lamanite. Why does the church lie about that? Or is that true? No, it's not, it's not true. It's spin. And the LDS Church knows that uh, when it puts out some, well, I don't know if the LDS Church knows, but the LDS defenders of the faith, some of them know that if they put enough spin out there, m many people will believe it. And this is what happens. Wow. I've been victim of this myself. For instance, let's say I want to find out an answer to a question. Uh, and, and so I have the belief I really want to be true. And so I go online and I look at something and the first resource I get says, what you believe is absolutely true and we can prove it by this. I, all I have is validation of what I want to be true and the war has been won. I don't go further, I'm, I'm, I got too much going on. And so just by throwing out an uh, oppositional view that seems to support what they believe, uh, will go a long, long, long way. That's, I believe, what Farms does and FAIR. I think they give partial answers and that sound real, I mean, they, you ask them what time it is and they give you a 70-page document telling you how to build the watch. It is amazing how, yeah. So I think that's why. And here's my next question. That leads to my next question. Why is it so hard? Like my sister knows for a fact the things that I have said and watching your videos and all those things like that, Sandra Tanner, she knows for 100% that the church isn't true. Why is it so hard for people in the, in the church once they get out to psychologically break away from the church? 
Well, belief is far more uh, influential and powerful in our lives than truth. Uh, believing, uh, you know, the truth, you know, you could hear that your husband is a philanderer and an adulterer, and a, I guess that's the same thing, and uh, uh, whatever, and yet you're so in love with him, you just don't want to look at the truth. You want to believe that you have something and you stick in it. And, you know, your sister, just like me and you, she was uh, exposed to a lot of good things, a lot of reinforcement from, from singing the primary songs to the mutual to the testimony meetings every week, mm -hmm. midweek. And that stuff, it gets in your head and it's really tough to let go of. Very tough. And so that's why it's so hard to reach the LDS and get them out because, you know, they, they just, even the truth doesn't seem to matter. What matters is what they want to be true. Well, that was kind of funny because my sister knows who I am as a person. I still keep the word of wisdom. I'm still very chaste. I'm a good kid, I, even outside of the church. And so when I first had told her this, she was like, well, maybe you didn't have the spirit when you went into the temple. And, you know, she started to, uh, what's that word, like uh, ostracize for me. And I was like, and this was brainwashing. And I got angry and I was like, Donna, you know who your sister is. But I lost two friends already in church. That it didn't even take two seconds. And then when I said I've been doing research, they were like, oh, my gosh, what? And I, I don't talk to them anymore. They're like, you better take your records out. They just treated me like absolute garbage, and that's not Christ-like. So I was like, okay, yeah. I'm like so done. But how do you convince other members of the church, how, the falsehood, like Joseph Smith, the fact that he didn't use plates, even today Thomas Monson still lies and the leaders still lie. How do you convince somebody of the truth? You, you don't, and, and it's something you're going to yeah. have to learn. Uh, what you are going to be able to do is help truth seekers discover the truth. But to convince... They have to want it. They have to want it. And seekers of truth discover. Those who don't, I don't care what faith they're in, but Mormons are really tough because of what we talked about. But so you're going to give yourself a lot of uh, ease if you can just realize that you are there to help people bring in light. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go down their gullet better with honey than it will with vinegar. And you just keep being there for people who want to ask questions like your sister. Give them the answers in love. Give them the freedom to search. And the truth seekers will find. That's a good one. One last question. What led you, what convinced you that, there was no, that the church wasn't true? Uh, it was a pr process. A lot of searching. A lot of testing. Uh, and ultimately... Um, it was a lot of stuff. Like our aphoristic friend Reed says, I got a library card. Uh, that helped. <laughs> the information helped. But also, you know, just realizing myself as a sinner, when a Latter-day Saint really, this is something that's important, is that when, when your sister or a Latter-day Saint really understands the holiness of God and the sinful nature of man, and that disconnect between the two and what Jesus did mm -hmm. to bring it, that helps a lot. And so uh, you're, on for, you're in for a long, bumpy road, but you know what? God is going to bless you. He already has. You're talking to a sister who you love, who's willing to listen to you. And you'll be used greatly as you continue to grow. So keep doing it, my sister. Thank, Thank you so much, Don. You're the best. Love you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. We're going to Osgood. What a name. 
Osgood in Akron, Indiana. Osgood. Hey, Sean. What up, Ozzy? Oh man, nothing. I'm I'm so excited to finally get to talk to you. Uh, I encountered your show a while back, and and I called an old number, and and they told me it was that you weren't there anymore, and I got sad for a while, and I'm just so happy to get to talk to you now. Glad to get to talk to you. Tell me, is it really the first name? Yes, that's my first name. Fantastic. What's it from? Um, you know, my dad told me he found it in a book, but apparently it's of African descent, and it's funny because I'm Mexican. What do you know? Yeah, so that's strange. Uh, <laughs> but I just I wanted to uh, I wanted to make a comment to you and also ask a question. Yeah. Um, so my comment is uh, I I I I, uh, I encountered your show when I. Um, I started, I start. I, I ran into a couple Mormons and then I you know, started getting that story and, and everything. And, uh, you know, it really, really, get, you know, the Lord really gave me a burden for them. And I just really started studying more into it. And then I, you know, ran into your show and I really just commend you on what you do, brother. And uh, it's really great to see uh, see you up there and doing what you do and how you do it and everything. And uh, you're, you're an inspiration to me. I have a passion for ministry as well. And, uh, so it's really cool to see you up there doing that, and uh, I just love to follow your shows and, and, and things you say and all that. So, uh, Thanks, Osgood. You're pretty. Huh? Thank you. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're pretty. You're, you're pretty awesome. Uh, so my question is, um, wow, I forgot my wait. What, I forgot my. <laughs> <laughs> I just got so excited. Well. Um, you sound like a nice kid. Thanks. Oh yeah. So I've been I've just been in the faith for just two years now, but I've been studying quite a bit. And, you know, I've had my struggles here and there, but I just I guess I wanted to ask you for some advice on like uh, when you what you were talking about a little bit ago when you kind of run into people that kind of put themselves under a banner and whatnot. Uh, what what would you say to what would you say to me like as far as um, as far as study goes and, and avoiding kind of being caught up in that whole like claiming a certain title and all that kind of stuff because I. I I got involved in a, in a church, and uh, it's a Wesleyan church, and you know that I didn't know about denominations before, and then now I'm kind of seeing that denominations aren't really a good thing, and at least in my eyes, in my opinion. But so I guess um, you know what, what I guess what I'm asking is, um, how do you go about your 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 daily study and all that stuff, and, and doing what you do, and as far as ministry goes? Well. Osgood, what, what, uh, to answer kind of your question, um, it, t it took a long time because I naturally, I came out of Mormonism and so I glommed on to uh, Calvary Chapel's way, their distinctives, and I really, I really bought into them as hard as I bought into Mormonism because it, it replaced this void for me. But what happened was I started, I just kept reading the Bible and I, and I was dogmatic on points and I started realizing around me were people who loved the Lord as much or more than I did, and they viewed very differently from how I did. And I was so, uh -huh. I was so convinced that the Calvary Chapel way was right, and so I defended it like I defended Mormonism, and I realized, man, I'm just doing the same thing. And so I opened up that door, and I just started saying, I'm gonna, every time someone says, this is how it is, I don't care what topic it is. This is how it is. This is it. Uh, I, I look to see through the Bible and Scripture if there's another way. And there always is. Oh. 
<laughs> so uh, that's how I would do it. I, you know, stay in the word. Uh, learn from the Wesleyans. Don't become embittered toward them or accusatory. Let them teach you. And then learn from the, everybody else that comes along in your path. And you'll grow by it. And, and you'll, be, you'll be fine, Osgood. You have a heart for the Lord. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I have a pretty great pastor. And he, uh, he, he was in the pulpit one day. And he was just saying, you know, if you ever encounter somebody that says that they've figured out God or, or talks like they know, you know, God, definitively or something like that or if they have all the answers or something like that then run from them and I, I really took that to heart and I was like man you know that's great advice because I just you know reading the bible and then kind of taking into account everyone's opinions and you yeah. know reformed theology and then Arminianism and all that stuff it's just kind of it's kind of intimidating when you know everyone says this is the right way and it just reminds it you know kind of studying Mormonism as well it just kind of reminded me of that everyone saying well this is who God is this is who God is so yeah, I really appreciate what I really appreciate that what you said. Hey, your pastor sounds like a great guy, and he's got his head on straight. Keep going and, and learn from him, and and uh, wish you the best of luck, Osgood. Hey, thank you. Oh, one quick one, one quick question. Do you know Dave Bartosowicz? I do know Dave. I know Dave really well. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I I talked to him on the phone one day, and he was just a great guy, and he called me his friend, and he was just <laughs> it was really cool to me, and uh, he, he's all he, I kind of inspired by him also in a way so you guys are both awesome and i, I commend you and uh you guys i just you know pray for you guys and, and i like your boldness man thanks thanks my brother take care hey you too see ya bye-bye dave bartos what's the guy who here in salt lake area goes and he does a lot of street interviews you see him on youtube a lot uh and uh so that's his ministry and apparently osgood knows him uh we have three minutes according to derek we are going to Mark in Alberta, Canada. Mark, we've only got about two minutes. Can you do it? Oh, hang on, yeah, three minutes down. Yeah, I can do that. All right. Um, last week I talked to you about the tithing and all that stuff and at, at the uh, Pentecostal church I go to. Yeah. And then, uh, and I guess this past Sunday there was they had a you know a traveling minister in or whatever, and and he had some good ideas and whatnot, and he had. You know, he had this children's book, and he was going to India and all sorts. He's trying to get into all sorts of countries and to, into the um, school system for grade four uh, kids, nine years old. Anyhow, uh, but then they just start peddling for money, you know, and just after everyone just gives their donations, you know, and it just, I'm just uh, just going to let you know that I'm just going to let my feet do the walk. Uh, the walking there and talking because uh, I'm just it actually turns my stomach about how much money they want. Yeah, <laughs> it's just to keep on reaching in and reaching in and you know there's no such thing as a budget <laughs> with these people. You know? And and, uh, and that's not even how the Bible talks. About. The Bible is very clear on how to be stewards of our money. Yeah, and uh, and so um, uh, I just I've just had enough of it and uh, I appreciate what you've done. Uh, I guess just like you just uh, mentioned earlier, a few minutes ago here, uh, in in a nutshell, you said uh, you know uh, you came out of Mormonism and you went to Calvary Chapel and things like that, and you know, and that's what I did in the church I'm attending to. And one one quick thing here is, I guess what really bothered me the most is they were at one point buying five thousand dollar microphones, <laughs> and it's just. 
and now they dropped their budget down to $3,500 microphones. And they, I said, well, what's going on with the microphones? And they said, people keep dropping them. And I said, well, maybe they should pay for them. <laughs> you know, so that's, I just want to let you know that it's, uh, it's more about the money in the show than it is anything. Well, it's good you know you that gut feeling. Uh, continue to follow it and wa vote with your feet and keep going, my brother. Never let go of the king. Love ya. God bless. Bye. Bye. We'll see you next week. We're going to talk about some LDS things here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel 